morning. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. My name is Norton. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver Church, and uh, I want to begin with a question today, um, and here it is. What makes a follower of Jesus different from someone who is not a follower of Jesus? So what makes a, a Christian, and, and maybe you're listening or watching online, or maybe you're even here, and you would say, I'm not, I'm not even sure I would call myself a Christian. Um, this will be a great question for you to think about as well. Uh, what makes someone who calls themselves a Christian or a follower of Jesus different from someone who is not a follower of Jesus? Is it just what they believe? Is it what they believe about God or about the Bible or about Jesus? Is that what makes them different? Or is there a lot more to it than that? Now, we're going to come back to that question in a little bit. Uh, we are in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. And uh, we've been reading through the entire book of Leviticus together. That's right. If you happen to be coming for the first time today, we're going through 13 weeks of Leviticus, which is a bit crazy and strange. And it's not going to get any stranger than it gets today. So let me just give you a heads up really quick. Here's, uh, we're going to read five whole chapters. We're not going to read the whole things. We're going to skip and skim a lot. But here's what these five chapters are about. They're about what foods you can and cannot eat if you're an ancient Israelite. Uh, they're about what to do when you give birth to a child. Uh, maybe some of you could come up and help us teach that part, right? Uh, they're about what to do when you have a skin rash, what to do if you find mold in the walls of your home, and then what you should do regarding bodily discharges, particularly male and female genital discharges. So this is going to get real today, all right? Are you guys ready uh, for this sermon? I'm not. This is probably the hardest sermon I've ever had to figure out how to preach. But um, before you tune out and think this is crazy, uh, or before you walk out, um, we're going to read these instructions. And uh, these instructions were not written to us. There's a, a, a deep awareness of that. These instructions were written to people who lived 3,000 years ago in a totally different context, in a totally different culture, but here's what I want to try to do today. I want you to ask, what is the lesson beneath all of these instructions? What's the message beneath all of this? What's the story beneath the story that might apply to us? Because the application is not going to be to go out and live according to these instructions. Don't worry. That's not what I'm going to say at the end of the sermon. We are not supposed to live out the details of these instructions, but I think there's something underneath all of this that is for us. It's just going to take us a little time and a little work to get to that. So hang in there, be patient, and we're going to figure that out along the way. So Leviticus, if you are just joining us, it's a book that it contains all of these instructions that were given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai about how they should live their lives. And here's one thing we read last week from chapter 10. It, this, these were part of the instructions given to the high priest Aaron. It said this, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting. So uh, they're in this tent of meeting. Going to talk about that in a second. This is a place where the priests help the people experience and worship God. And uh, there was an incident Brian mentioned we read about last week. It was tragic. It might have involved alcohol. And so God just said, hey, just so you know, when you are a priest and you are serving in the tent of meeting, do not drink on the job. Why? 
so that you can distinguish between what is holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Now there's four really important words that I want to talk through really quickly here. The first is the word holy, and what this is referring to is holy space. Holy space for the nation of Israel at this point would have been the tent of meeting. It was called the tabernacle and it was holy because this is where they came to meet with God. That's why it was called the tent of meeting. This is where they came into his presence. This was a space full of his presence. It was ordered very intricately to represent his ordering and it was in and under his rule. So holy in this sense meant different and set apart as a space where you meet with God, where you experience his presence, his ordering, and his rule. Now, there was always a view that the mission for Israel was to bring his presence and his ordering and his rule to the whole world, but it always started with a specific place. It starts with this specific space, an actual space. In the middle of the camp, they're all camped in the wilderness, and right in the middle of the camp is this walled-off space. So that's holy. And then there's the common. The the common is all the other space. The the common is the ordinary space. The common is the everyday space. Common space is where you live, It's where your house is. It's where your tent is in their case. It's where you eat your meals. It's where you raise your goats. It's where you play with your children. It's where you do everything else. It's common, ordinary, everyday space. This is where you live most of the time. But here's what we're going to see. If you want to move from common space to holy space, you need to be clean. You need to be pure. There is this idea of clean or pure, and we're going to talk about that more in a second, but if you are clean and if you are pure, then you can move into holy space. If you are prepared to enter holy space, you can enter it, but there are some things that make you unclean that make you impure, right? There are some things that make you unprepared to enter into holy space. Now, we're gonna talk about the difference between those two in a little bit, but now you can see why it's important. They're given these instructions to the priest. You have to help people understand holy and you have to help them understand common. You have to help them understand what makes them clean and prepared to enter into holy space and what potentially might make them unclean or unprepared to enter into holy space. Now, this sounds weird and odd to us because we don't think in these categories. We don't, we, we don't use these kind of words or these terms in this way today. But if you stop and think for a second, we actually do have these categories. Think a moment about the airport. The airport is set apart. It is different. There's no other place you can go in our city where you can board a plane for New York City. 
It is the only place here that you can go and board a plane. It is set apart. It is different. And so when you live your life in common space and then you drive to the airport, you have to go through security. And if you have certain things that you are carrying, you are not allowed to enter through security into the airport. There are certain things that are forbidden items that you cannot take into the airport. If you go to a yoga class, there might be a sign out front that says, you cannot bring a cell phone into yoga class because there's something about this space. We're trying to protect this space. We're doing something here in this room and cell phones are a distraction from that. So you're not allowed to enter if you have your cell phone. You go to some art museums, there's signs out front that say food and drinks are not allowed because there's something important about the space. There are things in this space, there are things that people are going to experience in this space and food and drink are forbidden items in this space. You can't enter if you have those things. Or think about a hospital operating room, right? What do the doctors, the surgeons, the nurses, and the assistants have to do before they enter into the operating room. They have to scrub, right? They have to change their clothes. They have to get clean. They have to pay attention to all sorts of intricate details before they enter that space because something is going to happen in there that is really, really important, and they have to be fully prepared before they enter into that room. So that's what's happening here. Holy space, common space, things that make you clean and prepared to enter into holy space and things that might make you unclean, not prepared to enter into holy space. So obviously that raises the question, well, what makes you unclean, right? We have five chapters to tell us what makes us unclean. Chapter 11, verse one. And I'm just gonna... um, read uh, through this um, and skim a whole bunch, but here's what it says. Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. So uh, some animals have divided hoofs. That means uh, their foot or their hoof is split into two or more toes, also called a cloven hoof. So, um, and then chewing the cud is the way certain animals chew and digest their food really slowly. These are all herbivores, by the way. And so any animals that have this divided hoof and that chew the cud, you can eat those animals. Verse four, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, it is unclean for you. The rabbit, it is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean. And then there's all kinds of descriptions. Which animals are clean? Which animals are unclean? You cannot touch or eat the ones that are unclean. And then it goes on and gives more descriptions. Uh, Verse nine, of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales, 
clean. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, you are to regard as unclean. So uh, bass, trout, cod, tuna, all clean. You can eat those. Uh, Shrimp, crab, lobster, no skin or no scales, no fins. They're unclean. You cannot eat them or they will make you unclean. Verse 13, these are the birds you are to regard as unclean. The eagle, uh, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, and then it just goes on and on and on. And I won't go through all the long list of birds, but most of the ones that make you unclean are scavenger birds. Verse 20 is about insects. Certain insects are clean. Certain insects are unclean to eat. Verse 29 is about animals that move on the ground that do not have legs. Which ones are clean? Which ones are unclean? Then verse 31 describes what do you do if you touch the carcass of a dead animal that's unclean or you eat one that's unclean. And usually, by the way, you just have to wait. You just wait a period of time and then after a period of time, you become clean again. And so there's all these instructions in the very end of them, verse 43, do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean. Now, the two words, clean and unclean here, um, I want to talk about those a little bit and explain what's going on here. And I want to actually give you two new words. These are key words. I want to give you two new words to help you understand them. First, Uh, The Hebrew word that is translated as clean um, in English, um, it it can refer to clean in the sense of hygiene, but it doesn't always refer to clean in that way. Uh, A few other ways that it's used or that it refers to is something that is pure, something that is whole, something that is undiluted or untainted. So in Exodus, there's instructions given to the craftsmen about how to overlay the ark and the table and and, and the lampstand with gold. And it says, overlay them with pure gold. So you see here, it's not about whether something has been scrubbed clean or not. It's talking about pure gold in the sense of it's undiluted, it's untainted, it's unmixed. It doesn't have any other metals in it. It is pure gold. Gold. So the key idea that we often translate is clean. Probably a better word that we might use would be the word purity or being pure. And then the Hebrew word that we translate as unclean is interestingly not a negative word in Hebrew. It's not just the word for clean or pure with a negative prefix added to it. So that's why unclean doesn't work that well. Even impure probably wouldn't work that well. It's a Hebrew word that is actually, it stands on its own. It's not just the antonym of the other word. And it means something that is dangerous to you. Something that could dilute you. Something that might compromise you. Or something that could harm you. And just so you know, the thing that could dilute you or harm you or compromise you in some way is not bad in and of itself. It's sort of like when you were four years old and your parents said, do not play with matches. It's not that the matches are bad. It's not that they're evil. It's not that they're sinful or they're dirty in some way. And maybe as a four-year-old, you didn't even understand why you weren't supposed to play with matches. You just knew they were off limits. Mom and dad said, don't touch them, don't play with them. They are off limits. Just like at the airport, knives, off limits, right? You cannot bring that. At the museum, food and drink, 
off limits. Do not try to bring them in. And so there's one scholar, his name is John Golden Gay. He's, he's a brilliant Old Testament scholar. And he suggests that there's a better word than the word unclean, and it's the word taboo. Taboo. Some things, and this is actually used in other cultures, and it's not a perfect translation either. There's no perfect, tra- there's some concepts in other languages that just don't translate into a different language in a different culture, but, but taboo can be helpful because it's not that these things are sinful or dirty or wrong. It's just that if you eat them or you touch them, they make you, uh, they're dangerous to you or they dilute you or they might compromise you in some way. So they are off limits. They are taboo. Now, that still leaves the question, why are rabbits taboo, right? Why are some animals, I mean, I get it that there's two lists, but why is this list taboo and this list is pure? We're gonna have to come back to that question because I want to keep moving forward and I want to leave these words on the screen so you can kind of think about these categories as we read a little bit farther because Leviticus actually switches gears. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean or taboo for seven days. And it says, it goes on, I won't read the rest, but it says, she cannot go into the tent of meeting because that's holy space. She's taboo, she's unclean. For her to become pure again, she has to wait this period of time, seven days, and then she has to appear to the priest who is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. She has to bring a burnt offering, which needs to be a lamb, and she also has to bring a purification offering that needs to be a dove or a pigeon, And by the way, if she can't afford a lamb and a dove, she can just bring two doves or she can just bring two pigeons. And 1,300 years later, we read about a young woman named Mary and her husband Joseph and they show up at the entrance to the temple just after they've had a child and she's waited the appropriate time and they bring two doves or two pigeons following these instructions. Now, Um, When you first read this, I don't know if you're like me, this feels weird and wrong uh, because it's almost as if saying, and and if if you have the impression that unclean means sinful or wrong or dirty and somehow, then you read this passage and you think a woman just gave birth and she's being called dirty or sinful or wrong for some reason. I mean, I know this is a patriarchal culture, but it seems like this is just misogynistic. This is a bad view of women and what's going on. And that's not actually what's happening at all here. Because when a woman gives birth, especially in that culture, think about how dangerous that would have been, right? Think about the possible harm. Think about the ways that many births ended. Not good, right? Think about how a woman is staring life and death in the face when she goes through this really serious, sometimes traumatic thing that's happening. Think about the loss of blood, the loss of bodily fluids. And in that culture, when your blood represents life, when you lose a lot of blood, there's a sense that you are coming dangerously close to losing your life. Think about the way that that, that giving birth would compromise a woman's wholeness compromise potentially her 
body. And so this is just a recognition of how serious this is. In fact, at some level, this might even be communicating, hey, when you give birth, you need to take some time off. You need to stay at home for a while. You just went through something serious and beautiful and mysterious and sometimes even tragic. And so you need to stay at home and heal and be made whole again. Do you see how when when you look at it that way, it can be understood very differently? That's childbirth. We move on. Chapter 13, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin that may be a defiling skin disease, they must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. And the priest is to examine the sore on the skin. And if the hair on the sore has turned white, and if the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. And when the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them taboo or ceremonially unclean. And then there are verses and verses and verses, and I'm not gonna read through all of them. They give all kinds of instructions about what to do. If the rash changes color, if there's swelling, if it starts spreading, if it doesn't go away. And so there's this interesting period that the person is supposed to take a seven-day period of social distancing from others and quarantining from others because there is a recognition that their bodily health is being threatened, that they are potentially sick, that that harm is being done to them from this disease, and that could threaten the entire community, and so they need to separate themselves and quarantine from the community for a period of time. And then after they do that, it says they are to take a bath, they are to wash their hands really well. Leviticus was way ahead of its time, right? And then they're to actually shave the hair, present themselves to the priest again. Sometimes they have to bring an offering and the, the priest will pronounce them as pure and whole and healed and clean again. And again, when I first read this passage and when we first see this, it feels wrong that someone who maybe has a skin disease or, or just has something wrong with them, that they would be considered an outcast. They would be considered unclean and dirty and sinful as if it was their fault, as if they did something wrong. But that's not what this is saying at all. It's saying you need to take this seriously. It's potentially compromising you. It's making you not whole. And you need to address that. And so go see a priest and, and, and deal with it in a really serious way. Leviticus 13 and 14 also talk about mold. So there's a whole long section about now, not just something growing on your skin. What if you find something growing in your walls? What if there's something growing in your house? That can compromise your health. That can compromise the health of your family, the health of you, the health of anyone who's around you. So you need to take that seriously too. And there's all kinds of instructions about going to the priest and dealing with that, and quarantining from a, a, a time, and, and if there's fabric that has mold on it, or walls that has things that you need to do with all of those things. And then there's Leviticus 15. And uh, we're not going to read this, I'm just going to summarize it, because it talks about bodily fluids. And so first there's a discussion about abnormal secretions from a man's genitals. 
And most scholars think this is referring to what happens when a man contracts some sort of sexually transmitted disease. And then it just talks about uh, bodily fluids from a man in general, semen specifically. It talks about sexual activity and what happens when bodily fluids need to be dealt with. And then it moves on to a discussion about women and what happens for them every single month when they lose blood during their monthly cycle. And all of these things, all of these losses of fluids can potentially be taboo. Not because they're wrong. Not because they're sinful, right? In fact, this chapter discusses things that are quite natural, quite natural uh, in everyday life, right? But in that culture, remember, the loss of fluids and particularly the loss of blood was always seen as a danger, always the possibility that you were becoming less than whole, that this is something serious. And so in all of these cases, chapter 15, sometimes you took a period of time, sometimes you quarantined yourself from the community, sometimes you came back to the priest and you offered an offering, but you took it seriously. Now, there's one thread that's running through all this. I just want to mention it really quick. And uh, it's that all of these seemingly random things have to do with life and death. You have to eat food to sustain your life. And when you eat meat from an animal, you are killing that animal. You are going to touch and cut up its carcass so that you can eat life and death. With skin disease, with mold, you're facing issues of bodily health, of your physical health that sometimes, if they don't go addressed, can lead to death. When you give birth, you're bringing new life into this world. When you have sex, you're bringing the possibility, the opportunity of new life, and that always carries with it the possibility that these fluids will not produce new life, that they will, in essence, die. The child might not survive, might end in miscarriage, it might end in disease, it might end in bodily harm. And so you're staring life and death in the face with these things. And so one thing that ties all these random chapters together is that when life and death are there, even in the ordinary details of your life, pay attention to those things. Now, Still doesn't answer the question, right? I said we would come back to it. Why are some animals taboo? And why are some animals clean or pure? And this is where I think there's a lesson underneath all of this for us. Now, I should say real quickly, um, Jesus has some things to say about animals that are clean or not clean, about these rituals, about these purity rituals, about foods. And there's some other things in the New Testament And it's the reason why Christians don't follow these rules today. And we don't have time to look into that. So I'm gonna do a whole podcast on that this week. We're gonna jump into the New Testament and look at what it has to say about all of these things in Leviticus. But back to the question, why are some animals taboo and some are not? Well, there's been a number of theories. Nobody knows for certain, but there's a number of theories. Let me share a few of them with you. One really quick is maybe it's just about health. Maybe the taboo animals are unhealthy for you and there's been some dietary research that has tried to support that. And the other animals are healthy, and that's what God has in mind. You should eat healthy animals and not unhealthy animals. 
I don't know that there's a ton of evidence for this. Um, it can feel stretched at times, so I'm not sure that's a great reason. Second option is uh, that the taboo animals are about life and death as well. There's an anthropologist that came up with this theory, and it's after a lifetime of work, and she recognized many of the taboo animals are predators or scavengers. So these are animals that are tearing up carcasses and eating other animals in a, in a way that they're eating and consuming the blood in a sort of a violent way, and that goes against God's creation intent. And so that's why they're taboo. And then the other taboo animals are animals that are often prey. They're not predators, but they're vulnerable prey. They're, they're animals that often unjustly suffer at the hands of other animals. And so maybe God is recognizing in this that he's siding with the vulnerable and those who suffer. And he's making a statement and he's saying, I want you to consider these things even in the food you eat. Third option is uh, that these connect to Genesis chapter one. And there's a lot of evidence for this. When you read Leviticus 11, there's all kinds of imagery and words that are used that come straight from Genesis 1, which is when God created the world. He creates land animals, and then he creates sea animals, and then he creates birds, and the same categories are used in Leviticus 11. And then the animals are created according to their classes and kind, and that same phrase, according to their classes and kind, is used all throughout Leviticus 11. And so maybe what God is saying is, I distinguished between animals when I created them and made them. I distinguished between species and families and genus and all those things. And I want you to distinguish between animals as well. That I created these orders and I want you to align yourself with these orders. And then here's one final thought. Maybe all of this has to do with other people with other nations, with the neighbors who are going to live around Israel when they live in the promised land. Because Leviticus says over and over, these animals are taboo for you. It's very clear. This is for you, Israel. This is not for everyone. There's other people that are going to eat these animals. This is not a declaration for all of humanity at all times and all places. This is for you. Israel, I want you to eat foods that are different than all the other people around you. And there's evidence that the other nations ate these foods and these animals. There's some evidence that even they used them in worship of other gods. And it's almost as if God is saying, no, 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 no. I want you to be different. That's what holiness is. Remember, I want you to be different, even down to your eating habits, even down to the food that you prepare. Because think about the way that food is wrapped up in identity. If you're Italian, you eat what? Pasta. And you're proud of it, right? If you're from Texas, you eat barbecue and you are proud of it. If you're from the South, you drink sweet tea and you love it because it is amazing, right? And if you're from Wisconsin, you eat cheese and you're proud of that. And I could just go through all of these regions, but there's somehow what we eat, our food is so wrapped up in our identity. And it's almost as if God is saying, hey, hey, I want you to have a different identity. I want you to be different from all the other people around you. Why? Because I am different. Look at how that whole chapter ends. The last verse I'm going to read today. Chapter 11, verse 44 says this. I am the Lord, your God. 
Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And and by the way, you can just substitute the word different in there. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be different because I am different. You, You see, holiness is not an abstract concept. It's not a theological idea. It's I am different. I am different than the gods you worshiped or that enslaved you in Egypt. I saved you from that and I'm going to be a different kind of God. Those gods oppressed you. I liberate you. That was a society of injustice and inequity. I am a God of justice and equity. That was a place of fear and despair. I am going to be a God who gives you life and hope. I am am different. And it's why over and over and over you see this refrain. Don't forget, I brought you up out of Egypt. That's why I'm holy. I'm different. I am bringing a new ordering and a new rule into this world. And I want you to reflect that as my people, even in the food that you eat, even in the way you think about pregnancy and mold and sores and sex. In all of those things, I want you to be different. So here's the question I want to end with today. I want you to think about this. How should we be different? How should we be different? Uh, Not in the abstract way, not in the very general way. You know what? Christians should really be more loving and more kind. Well, of course we should be more loving and kind. But no, no, no. Get specific and concrete. How should we be different? Perhaps we should still eat different kinds of food. Perhaps the way we treat our bodies should be different than the way everyone else treats their bodies. Perhaps the way we think about sex should be really different than the way everyone else does. Perhaps the way we engage technology or entertainment should be really different than the way everyone else does. Perhaps there should be daily reminders, daily micro-rituals when we're preparing our food, when we're watching things, when we're doing things, when we're listening to things, when we're acting things out or performing things. Maybe there should be things that remind us over and over and over, just like the ancient nation of Israel, you are different because I am different. And so today, I just want to ask you, let your imagination run a little bit. I want you to go home and just think about this question as you drive home or as you eat a meal or as you watch football or whatever you do today. Just think about this question. How might we be different? How might I be different? How might I embody a different ordering for our world? Because remember, God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be different for I am different. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, I pray that you would give us imaginations uh, to see how we might live and be different, um, how we might embody and show what your rule looks like and how it's good, how it's full of grace, how it's full of compassion and liberation and justice and order. And it's not chaotic. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It's not destructive. It's not harmful. 
And God, we, none of us know what that really looks like. Maybe that does, maybe there are some micro rituals. Maybe there are some little things that we do every single day that need to change. That would show us that we're different and you called us to a different way. I pray that you would give us the vision to see and to be able to live out those ways in our lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen.